So my family and I have been here for just over a year now. And actually my son's coloring page that he left here after first service uh, ran up to see me. But uh, we've been here for over a, just over a year now. And when we first got here, you know, we're getting, we're talking to you guys, getting to know you. And pretty quickly, uh, a good bit of you learned that, that my wife has some musical abilities and giftedness and was a worship leader at the church we came from before. And obviously since has been involved with our worship team here and been able to serve here. So some of you, understandably so, had a question. And that question was, well, do you have any of that gifting? Do you have any musical ability? And I, if I was honest, instantly told you no, none, none whatsoever. It's not a shared ability because the, 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 the question often comes up, well, you know, maybe that was, oh, maybe something you guys bonded over. No, not, not, none whatsoever. I was the, you know, I had a college class in community college where I don't know why we had to do this, but in a physics class, you had to make a recorder and like for an assignment, the next day you had to show up and play a song. It could be any song. I promise you, I came in the next day and one person played My Heart Will Go On. And then I struggled with hot cross buns because I couldn't get the technique down correctly. Uh, but uh, I, could, I could barely figure out the angle I had to blow over the hole on the recorder that was, I made out of PVC pipe. So yeah, no musical ability for me. I got a guitar in high school and uh, you know, wanted to learn. I liked the idea of it. But it just didn't click for me because people were like, well, you can play this song in this key or you do it this way. I'm like, no, there's got to be one way or I don't do it. Like there's got to be one way or, or I don't understand. And so it, it, it wasn't like narrow enough for me. So it just uh, never became a thing. But when I, my wife and I got married, uh, one of the first houses we lived in before we had kids had a pretty big spare room. So we took the drum set that she had growing up out of her parents' house and put it in there. I was like, oh, cool. I never had a drum set before. So, uh, you know, I start messing around with that and and it's not that this story isn't me becoming an amazing drummer, in case you're wondering. But all I, all I did is learn like a simple beat that Katie showed me. It's like a, you know, a real simple thing. I don't know the terminology. But, uh, but so I, I learned this simple little beat. And one day before youth group, uh, might, might have been the day of youth group at the earliest, uh, it was before, the day before. She said, hey, uh, we don't have a drummer this week, which was common. People kind of cycle in and out who's available a given week for youth group. And she's like, do you think you'd want to play one of the songs? I'm like, it's like when you're watching a movie or show and the record scratches, like, eh, you know, like, uh, and you're like, no, that, no, that doesn't sound good at all. Like, and she's like, yeah, uh, there's just one song and this is where the pause in the story becomes because to this day there's debate. I say it was a certain song called Happy Day that slows down, which will be important later. Um, my wife disagrees, says it was one song that's one pace the whole way through. And it's like maybe in your family you have a certain story that one of you is like, I know 100%, and the other one acts like it's folklore, like you've added to it over the years. So yeah, this is, how, this is one of those stories for my wife and I. So she, she's like, yeah, it's that simple beat, and, and that's, it happens to be this one worship song. And we could play that at the beginning, and it gives some energy to the night. I'm like... I mean, I don't know how to play with a band. Like, what if I drop the drumstick? I don't know how to keep in rhythm or anything. And she's like, it's fine. It's just that simple thing. I'm like, all right. I, she's like, we'll practice. And I was like, okay. So show up to youth group uh, about an hour early. And, you know, if you've ever been here early, or if the worship team or worship teams a lot of times will do like maybe 30, 60 seconds. If they know the song really well, they don't have to do the whole song. Yeah. So uh, we play for about 60 seconds. They're like, all right, we're going to do the next song. So you're good now. And I was like, I, I've never even played the whole song with you. Like, I don't feel like this is good. And uh, they're like, no, no, you sound great. And I was like, 
isn't there a part of this song that slows down for like 15, 20 seconds? And Katie's like, no, you just play that. That speed, you just keep playing that the whole time. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. But you're the worship leader, what do I know? I, I, just, I know how to play one beat on the drums, so I, I don't know anything. So I was like, okay. So youth group starts, and uh, I get up there, or you know, we have announcements, we have games, and then the kind of service portion is starting, and worship team gets called up front, and Katie comes up front and grabs her guitar, and then she's like, hey, we actually have a drummer for the first song, and it's my husband, John. And everyone's like, what? And like, so I walk up and there's like a slow clap starts and it's like a supportive part of a movie. It's like Rudy. I'm going up there and like, that guy can't play, but we're going to clap for him, you know? So uh, they start clapping for me and uh, which, and like, it was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I didn't know you could do this. And so I get up there and start the song off and it's going okay. I mean, like, I don't know how to hold the drumsticks too well. So it's like slipping a little bit in my hand. So I'm like clenching too tightly. Cause I'm like, if I drop this drumstick, I might as well just go sit down. <laughs> like I should just stop in that moment. So like I'm drumming and throughout the song, I keep thinking, I'm pretty sure three quarters of the way through the song, it's, it slows down. And then I, I could tell it was coming up and there was like a two or three second crossroads in my mind while I'm playing. And I'm like, wait a minute, if, I have two options. One, I can try to slow down with everyone, try to stay in rhythm, and then just, you know, try to come back into the, like, speed up and end the song well. But that's not going to happen. I don't know how to do that. I don't have any sense of rhythm. Uh, you know, I only knew this one beat. I don't know how to adjust the speed and everything. And I was like, there's a second option. The first option embarrasses everyone. The second option, I follow my sword and only embarrass myself. And that option is I just play the same speed, and then they'll be able to jump back in after the slow section. I'll look like I know nothing and you know, it'll be incredibly embarrassing. But again, I only have two seconds to think of this. So I choose the second option. So much to, you know, to go against what my wife had told me, she starts slowing down and she's singing softer. You know, her guitar playing slows down, the bass is slows down, the keyboard is slows down and there's me. <laughs> Just playing at the same speed, thinking the whole time like, I said the song slows down. I literally look at Katie and she's not looking at me. She's singing, but I'm looking like, you did this to me. This is your fault. I told you the song slows down. I don't know if it's a 15 second portion of the song, a 20 second portion of the song. I don't know what it is, but it felt like five years. And I'm pouring sweat. One, I was already like a little nervous that I didn't know what I was doing anyway. So I'm like pouring sweat. I don't care if a kid was having like the greatest single worship experience of his life or her life. They put their hands down and they're just like, Ugh. and there's a lot of kids there that night, like 60, 70 kids, and they all just stare at me. So I'm pouring sweat and all these kids are like, what is wrong with you? It, it, it was so clear that like I didn't know what was happening, at least they thought. Now, they don't know my little mental game that I had to play and that I chose to, the honorable route to fall on the sword. But for them, it's just like, what? Like, clearly everyone is playing at like a tenth of the speed that you are. And then the band picks back up and, and then we're all back in unison. And then the song is over. And uh, my wife is like, all right, uh, give it up for John. And if you've never seen, if you've never had anyone applause out of pity for you, well... I don't even know if their hands touched. I mean, it was like, eh. I mean, before it was like, woo, that sounds great. This was like, oh, please, please go sit down. And uh, I took this shameful walk back to my seat. And, 
in the first service, I, I looked at Aaron, who was singing over there, and I said, listen, um, if we're ever without of a drummer, I know that doesn't speak well in my ability if we need a sub, but I think it shows perseverance. So if like Mike or Sean can't drum, I'm just, I'm just saying I'm, I'm available. Someone's got to teach me how to slow down with the band. Uh, but yeah, I can try. So I share that story because I think of it any time that I think of us being out of place, as I very clearly was in that moment. Us being somewhere where we don't belong. Us going against the grain. And I think that in the kingdom of Jesus, we're often, if we're doing it rightly, not that we seek out those moments, but I think there's going to be moments where you're feeling like you're just drumming along and everyone's just staring at you slowly, plucking their bass, like, why did we ever allow her to bring her husband into this? And you're just drumming along. If you could turn to Revelation chapter 21. To recap, actually, let me pray first. Getting ahead of myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open it up before us, that you give us spiritually open eyes and ears to see and hear you and experience you this morning. Lord, give us spiritual protection in the name of Jesus over all of us sitting here and myself as I preach. Lord, let us see and hear your son this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Revelation 21. So last week, uh, let me recap before we get to Revelation 21, in case you weren't here. We looked at the seven letters that Jesus spoke to John that he sent out to the seven churches. And we, we had our kind of basically just a public reading of those two letters so that we could hear directly from Jesus. And those are hard-hitting letters. If you listen to even three sentences out of them, they're hard-hitting. Jesus gives rebukes. He says things like, you've forgotten your first love. Like you were called to love me above all else and you've just completely forgotten that. Jesus says things like, you know, you did great works for me at first. Like you loved me and you were like, I'm gonna do stuff for Jesus and, and now you've kind of stopped. And he's like, what happened to that? And then he gets to the church in Sardis and hits even harder and says, look, I don't care. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I don't care what people say you are, who people say you are. I don't care what, it looks like you're a living, active, thriving church, but I say you're dead. So there were hard-hitting things that, 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 that we just heard from Jesus out of Revelation. Then we got to the church in Philadelphia. The, as we said last week, that'd be the one church you would like to have been a part of so that when you got your letter, it wasn't too bad. In fact, there's, there's no rebuke. There, there's no, there, he's not yelling at them for anything, but he still gives them, a, a, I think, a stern warning. He's talking to Philadelphia. He says they must have been persecuted because he says you have little power left. I think they've been weathered by the storm of persecution. And he says, hold, again, paraphrasing, but hold on to what you have so that you will receive the crown. Meaning cling on to all, he's saying, look, you have little power left. You've been weathered by persecution. It's been hard for your new church. This is the early days of the Christian church. He's like, this has been hard for you. Really all you have is me. So just cling on to me and you'll keep the crown, meaning you'll get to be in paradise one day. You'll get a life, uh, not even a lifetime, an eternity with me. I referenced uh, a verse out of Revelation 21, but I wanted to read that again today. So Revelation 21, just a few verses there. Verses three through five. Give you a little context, Revelation 20. So what we're picking up right after. Revelation 20 is where the judgment happens and they rolled out the book of life and, and Jesus says, you know, everyone who didn't know me, you've been rejected. 
into what's called the second death, the lake of fire. You're good, like those who weren't with Jesus, they're cast out and for eternity they will be punished without Jesus. But then right after that, so we, so we see this horrible, awful fate, but then right after that we see this beautiful fate for those who are in Jesus. Revelation 21, starting in verse three. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That, that's the, verse four is the one I referenced last week. That is increasingly become one of my favorite verses in all of scripture because that is an amazing hope. That no matter what death, grief, sorrow, pain, sickness you've seen either in your life or the life of a loved one, I don't say that lightly because I know how some of us have been affected recently. But no matter what pain you've seen, there's a hope that in this Revelation 21 that those who in Jesus know more of that. We don't have to experience it ever again. No more crying over people that have passed because then you'll have eternal life. No more suffering through sickness. No more suffering in, with any kind of uh, depression, anxiety, anything that, that would make us sorrowful. It's, it's gone and it's over. Verse five, then the one seat on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. In November, I preached out of Isaiah where Isaiah's, God says in Isaiah, behold, I am, I am doing a new thing. This is even better because in Revelation he says, I'm making all things new. My question in that sermon was, do you desire a new thing? Do you long for a new thing? Well, now we're looking at Revelation and we're saying, man, God's gonna make absolutely everything new. Everything that causes us pain, gone. I don't, sometimes I think we're, we're not even amazed enough by that because it can seem so far off and so distant to us. In, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he talks about the, makes kind of a picture of, of going to the afterlife and it's people getting on a bus ride on their way. And so if you, I think sometimes we picture that too, that we've come to, to faith in Jesus and that gets you on the bus, but then that bus ride to heaven is just clinging on. And you know, you're hitting potholes, you're swerving and you're holding onto the strap on top of the bus and you're like, I just gotta make it. I'm afraid that sometimes we know that God does a supernatural work to bring us into his kingdom, but we forget about the supernatural works he can keep doing now. Sometimes you might look at Revelation 21 and look, you can be honest with yourself. Maybe you look at that and that frustrates you. I mean, you shouldn't leave yourself in that frustration, but you can be honest if, if you look at that and be like, well, what does that do for me today? What does that do for me now? What about the sorrow and the grief and the death and the sickness that, 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 that I've experienced or people around me have experienced, those that I love have experienced? What does that do for today? See, the kingdom isn't just a future thing, but our hope is and our trust is and what gives me hope is that the kingdom exists in this very moment. Maybe in a way that we quite haven't taken seriously enough. This kingdom exists right now, not just in the future, not just in Revelation 21, but in this very moment. If you can turn to Luke chapter four. We're gonna see the biblical basis for this, for the existence of this kingdom. We're gonna see the very moment that this kingdom gets rolled out. 
Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. In unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm going to read those two verses again. Remember, this is Jesus literally just opening the Isaiah scroll and, and preaching and reading it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Sometimes we can uh, gloss over when Jesus says something pretty profound because we're like, that's Jesus. He just says things. And yeah, they're, crazy. they're, like, they're pretty out there and radical. Or yeah, Jesus says kind of weird things that people don't say every day. Like most people don't get up, read something, say today this has been fulfilled and then go sit down. Sometimes I feel like, you know, we can um, think like Jesus is like, like Yoda. He just talks a little bit differently than everyone else and we just accept it. And then, and then and we read it and we're like, that's what he does. And we can kind of gloss over how profound this is. So in order to understand, we need to build up a little bit of what's happening there. So you have to picture yourself as a first century Jewish person going to the synagogue. And you're going there, you go there every week for Shabbat. We call it Sabbath today, but for them it'd be Shabbat. You go there for Shabbat and you show up and what usually happens is you, there's a series of prayers. One is the Shema out of Deuteronomy. And then you um, read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And someone else reads from another writing, usually a prophet. So here like Isaiah. And then someone comments on it. So you do this every week, every Shabbat, much like going to church. But there's a key difference. It's a key difference between you going to church today and them going there on Shabbat. When they walk in, they don't see a cross. No one has a cross necklace on them. No one has any, any sort of cross anywhere. Because remember, in that moment, a cross was still just that guy on the hill that Rome wanted to make an example out of. It was just something used for public execution so that you remembered what Rome would do to you if you stepped out of line. So you show up and, and, and you read and you pray every week and you're longing for this Messiah to show up. You used to have your own country that was yours and now, now that doesn't exist anymore because Rome has taken over and they'll let you do your own thing to some degree. They let you worship your God to some degree but ultimately they're in charge and they constantly remind you what happens if you cross their lines. So you show up and you pray and you're longing and I would imagine this would be a familiar verse to everyone in the synagogue, what Jesus reads out of Isaiah 61 which was a prophecy about the Messiah that is to come. So you hear that, and maybe you've heard it before, and you're sitting in the synagogue, and you're like, probably thinking, man, if God would just send this Messiah already, that'd be amazing. And remember, some of them think that the Messiah was going to come in, overthrow Rome, and, and reestablish a dominant Israel. Not everyone, but a lot of people thought that. And yet Jesus gets up, reads this, simply says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the same people that were longing for a Messiah get so angry, you'll see later in the passage, 
if you go and read it, they, they, they run him out of the synagogue. They run him to the, towards a cliff because they want to throw him off a cliff to kill him because what he has said is he is God. So the question might become, well, why now? Why is it just that in Luke 4, the kingdom gets rolled out? This has been called Jesus' inaugural address. So just like a president next year in 2020, whether it's President Trump or someone else, regardless if it's a re-election or a new election, there's an inaugural address. Someone lays out four years plan. This is what they hope to accomplish. You know, this is what my government is gonna accomplish. This is what we're gonna do. Sometimes they hit the mark. Sometimes they fail terribly. This isn't what Jesus is doing. He's not getting up and saying, hey, you know, over the rest of my three years in ministry, I hope to accomplish this. He's saying, no, in this very moment, today, when you're looking at me, you're seeing me, you're hearing me, the kingdom starts now. And the question could be, well, why, why not before? They literally had a kingdom with a king that God established in the promised land. They had a temple. They were, had some prosperous years. So why wasn't Israel in the Old Testament God's kingdom like Jesus has laid out? There's one big difference, presence. The presence of God was limited before to the temple and now it is walking around in the God-man Jesus into a sinful world to be with us. That's the big difference. See, Jesus comes and he sets up this kingdom, this kingdom that if you were with Jesus that you live in currently, but what I'm afraid of we don't catch sometimes is how different we're gonna have to be. How much we're gonna have to play the drums even though we're embarrassed. Because this is an upside down kingdom. This is a kingdom that obliterates every expectation of what a government should do. Obliterates expectations of how you should carry yourself. I wrote a list of some things by no means an exhaustive list, but some differences between man's kingdom and God's kingdom. Man's kingdom cares only about your status and pre-existing qualifications. God instead speaks his plans to a child. A young Samuel, God tells him what he's gonna do. Now, he's not the only one that God speaks to, but God viewed that child as worthy of hearing this. Man's kingdom tells you to be independent, to pull yourself up. The kingdom is highly concerned with both appearances and embarrassment. Jesus instead tells us that blessed are the poor in spirit. In fact, he tells us that we are called to be so humble and so dependent instead of independent that we must have faith like a child or we don't enter the kingdom. There's not too many ways that the world's gonna tell you to act like a child as if that's a good thing. Man's kingdom will be impressed by your accomplishments for yourself. People will be impressed by how much money you can make and how well you can build up your life. But Jesus instead says, hey, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. In fact, he, he goes on to say elsewhere, you cannot serve both God and money. And these are just snippets of, of Jesus, but man's kingdom tells us to go for what you want in life. We're told that we only have one life and that we need to enjoy it for ourselves. Our greatest responsibility is to ourselves and to our own happiness. Everything else comes second to what brings you joy. This is what we're told in a variety of ways. This is the basis of almost all advertising that you see anywhere, is this will bring you the joy that you want. You need your joy before anything else, so buy this. Jesus tells us though, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Forever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. 
Man's kingdom tells us to focus on what we want out of life. Don't do anything you don't want to do. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't worry about it. Just do you, whatever it is. And said, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. And the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By no means an exhaustive list, but I think you're seeing what has been called, I'm not the first to call it this, this a bunch of scholars talk about the upside down kingdom. Remember, they wanted Jesus to come in and wreck Rome and take everything over and he says, I'll wreck Rome by dying on their cross. He obliterates everything we understand about how we should carry ourselves. Everything the world would say about how we need to act. About how we need to put ourselves and our desires and our dreams above all else. And Jesus says, not if you're going to follow me. Jesus says, if you, if you want to hold on to what you have in me and enjoy Revelation 21, then be in my kingdom now. And realize that in some ways, at times, my kingdom is going to look wildly different. If we grow into being kingdom people, I wrote another list of things that we will feel. We'll feel like we're exposed and uncomfortable at times. Sometimes we'll feel like we went too far and can't turn back. We'll feel like we have no idea what we're doing. We'll feel like we're not being successful enough. We'll feel like we're not getting to live the life that we thought we were going to live. Maybe you had a very set expectation or plan for your life and God's changed that. You might feel like we're not even getting to make all of our own decisions anymore. Maybe you feel like people don't understand you. Maybe even other people in, different, in church won't understand you. Maybe they'll say you're being too radical. Look, this kingdom exists today. This is called already but not yet. It's a theological way we understand this. That means that Already, this exists, even though it hasn't fully been realized like it will be in Revelation 21. This means that already Jesus has defeated sin in your life, even if you still haven't been fully delivered from it. This means that Jesus already has paid the price for you, even if you still suffer with the consequences of sin. One more passage we're going to look at today. If you can turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 14. When Jesus tells parables, he often says, the kingdom of God is like this. And I'm afraid that a lot of times when we read, we want to know what everything in the parable means. In the same way that a lot of times people struggle with revelation because like, I got to know what the seven seals are. I got to know what this is. I got to know what every single element is. Which, not that that isn't important at times, but these parables should be looked at as you look at the whole story and then that teaches you something about God's kingdom. 25, verse 14. For it is just like, and he's talking about the kingdom of God because he's in a chain of parables right now. So he's saying the kingdom of God is just like. Like a man about to go on a journey, he called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one one talent, depending on each one's ability. Can we put that picture of talents up there? Uh, so these talents, because uh, you might have no idea what they, because what, what it, it's not remotely the word that we're saying today even though that word talent comes from this parable. So a talent was a big form of measurement, like a stone or a piece of metal that would be used to measure coins. 
So if you got a talent worth of gold or a talent worth of silver, then you had, it would equal out on a scale to a 75 pound block of some sort. And the reason you need to know that is this is an incredible amount of money. Some people, and it's hard to do the math exactly, there's no way, but it's based on uh, talent is like 6,000 denarii, which is a coin that you get for a day's worth of work if you're an average worker. People have done the math to figure out that one talent is worth an average person's 15 to 16 years worth of labor. Again, numbers don't matter exactly, but just know that it is an incredible amount of money. All right, we can go back to the passage. The end of verse 15, then he went on journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So a master who's incredibly wealthy gives an incredible amount of money to people. He's like, hey, I'm gonna give you each compared to your ability. So, hey, you, I, I think you can handle five. I'll give you five talents worth. The other guy, I think you can handle three. So I'll give you the three. Or the, or the two, I should say. And the other guy, I think you can handle one, just one, but I'm gonna give you one talent's worth of money. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. So the master in this parable is like, that's great. I gave you five, you gave me five back. That's a good, that's a, you know, you doubled my money. Good job. You, you, you ran a business, you did whatever you did, you doubled it. Verse 22, the man with two talents also approached. He said, master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. 24, the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So this guy said, look, you're not doing any of the work. You left me with a bunch of money and you want me to do all the work and then you're just gonna show up and get all the benefits? Like, no, I'm not gonna, I didn't wanna mess up. I know you're a harsh guy. So all I did, and this was common back then, people burying their money. He's like, I buried all your money and it's here. At least you didn't lose any. Verse 26, his master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give to the, the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is a phrase often used by Jesus in the Gospels to refer to hell, to, refer to not being with Jesus. It's a place where people weep and gnash their teeth. So Jesus says, look, I gave it, like, it's, it's, it's like if I gave you a bunch of money, and you did something with it according to your ability, and I came back and I, after a long journey, and I was like, how did you do? And you're like, well, I doubled it. And he's like, that's great, sharing your master's joy. But what he's clearly telling us is like, you don't want to be the one who's like, ah, I just, it was cool that you gave it to me. I didn't want to mess anything up, so I just buried it and kind of left it there. I gave you seashells as you walked in today. You might be wondering why. We can put that next slide up. I gave you seashells because last week I talked about 
reading a book that really impacted me. I talked about a Christian book that I read as a new believer, and I talked about how it introduced me to Revelation 3.16, which I, I don't know, either I had never read it or I hadn't read it since I was a little kid and didn't really understand. And, and it wrecked me, and it made me go before God and say that, God, and you said, for you are neither uh, hot nor cold, or you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, I don't like that. So what can, God, what can you do? Well, as a new believer, there was, a, there was a series of things that wrecked me like this. I was seeking out teaching online as much as I could, and you gotta be careful of that. It's a good time to say, I think your first responsibility is to go continually the word to feed yourself. Second, I would say the local church, where people that actually know you and can interact with you can guide you. Uh, and a probably pretty distant third is teachers that you've never met who you can listen to. But it, it can be helpful, but I think we need to keep that uh, list in order. So, you know, I was thinking, like, I'm hearing sermons, and, and I'm starting to learn some things, but there's still a bunch of things I just don't understand. So I start reading Francis Chan, like I mentioned last week. I stumble upon John Piper, who's in this picture here. And this sermon from John Piper has become an incredibly famous sermon. It's called Boasting Only in the Cross. It's on YouTube. You can look it up. And he's speaking at a passion conference. This conference still exists. Thousands of people go to this every year. This was early in it. He's speaking to 40,000, roughly 40,000 college students outside one day. He gets up there. He doesn't look like a youth speaker. Like he's in his 50s already at that point. Doesn't look like someone that you, that you know, the stereotypical like high energy youth or college speaker that you'd bring in. He gets up there <coughs> just to, and he prays in a pretty incredible prayer. He asks God that you would grant me a prophetic word that would have a ripple effect to the ends of the earth and to eternity, which is a prayer that God has answered. Not only because it wrecked me, but I found blogs online. I found videos where people talk about the seashells they keep on their desk because of this sermon. There's people that talk about how they're missionaries now because of this sermon. There's people that talk about the way it changed their entire course of their life, not just college students, but people that were helping out at the event. <clears throat> and it's because, not because of John Piper, but because of God. So Piper gets up there, about three minutes into speaking to 40,000 college students, hits them pretty hard. He says, all you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell, and that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity, and that's a tragedy in the making. Despite 40,000 people being there, it's like you could hear a pin drop in a, in a field of 40,000 people. And then he compares and contrasts two short stories, <coughs> excuse me, all within the first 10 minutes of a sermon. He says, in my church, there are two people, two ladies, one thinking in her 70s and one in her early 80s. I think they had both been single all their lives and they were from Piper's church. They had went out to Cameroon and they were spending the rest of their life just ministering to the poorest of the poor and the sickest of the sick and sharing Jesus with them. And one day, they're, they're driving from a town to another town in their car. I don't know if it's bad roads in the country they're at or whatever, but their car goes off a cliff. They fall into a ravine and die instantly. And he asks to these 40,000 people, and he said, he asked to his church, he says, is this a tragedy? He emphatically says, no, it's not. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. He pulls out a little piece of Reader's Digest, 
starts reading. He tells the college students, I know you don't read this, but my generation does, and that was even 2000. He starts reading a story about two people that retired in their 50s and moved to Florida, Punta Gorda, Florida. They moved there in the articles about what they spend their days doing. And it says that they bought a big boat, they go around, they hang out on the beach pretty much every day, they play softball with some friends, but mainly they collect shells, seashells. And the way the article puts it is that, man, that's, a, that's amazing. Imagine spending pretty much every day just doing that. And Piper looks at these people and he says, that's the tragedy. And his actual quote is, as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing and look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Again, you can hear a pin drop on 40,000 people. He goes on to end that part of the sermon saying, don't waste your life, don't waste it. You know, me sitting in my room watching this on a laptop about nine, ten years after it happened and just wrecked. And I'd like to say that over those nine, ten years that I've always remembered the seashell every moment and didn't waste any big chunks of time. I'd be lying if I said it, but I'd love to say it. But it did, it was part of a trajectory that God put me on to say like, and Again, I, I've wasted too much time already, but to say, man, God, I, wanna, I want my life in some small way to count for eternity. And, and look, this isn't a works, uh, a salvation, um, you know, uh, based on your works. That's uh, not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, like, uh, you, you get to heaven and Jesus is like, all right, you, you, did, you did a thousand things for me. And, and if you had been at 999, you wouldn't get in. But this is looking at what Jesus said last week and saying, did you cling to this? Were you proactive? Did you look at your life as, and say, man, there's always, I don't care what age you are or how long you've been with Jesus, but you can know God better and serve God better. And he's asking, did you take that seriously? And even what Piper said, I think, is basically just repackaging the parable of the talents and saying, look, God has given you, I think the reason God makes it sound like so much money is because he's saying, my death for you, my perfect life and my perfect death for you was an incredibly, incalculably valuable thing that I gave to you. And eventually I'm going to come back like a thief in the night and I'm going to ask what you did with it. And I think Jesus is going to want a lot more than our seashell collection. The very best thing we can give people, whether it's in church on a Sunday, whether it's a kid zone or a youth group, whether it's in your house hanging out with people, whether it's you're at work and you're just interacting with someone as part of your day, the very best thing you can give people is God's presence. And look, I enjoy a lot of other parts of youth ministry, like big games and high energy stuff, and I think it has an important role and gives people a comfortable space and invites people in and lets them know that they belong and that God loves them. So I think that can be even part of worship too. But the primary thing that we can give people is God's presence. And people, the only way we're gonna be attractive as, as far as helping the gospel spread is people coming in, into inter interactions with you and saying, and they belong to something different. They belong to some sort of upside down kingdom that does life a lot differently than the world tells me to do it. 
And that's, that's the question that I keep asking myself is when people interact with me, do, do they get a sense of God's presence? Have I sought God enough myself that they see God when they talk to me? So look, we can, we can spend a lot of time on different programs and, and organizing different things that, that aren't bad. That I'm not even saying they're unimportant. But if we, if, we, if we miss out on just introducing people to God's presence, look, there's a bunch of organizations out there, secular organizations that, again, aren't bad, but they're going to outspend us. They're going to out-entertain people. They're, they're going to be more organized. They're going to do everything that we want to do better. Ultimately, eternally, the only thing I have, the only thing we have that we can give to people is to introduce them to God's presence. So that we can have a prayer like, like Piper did that day that, that that message would have a ripple effect to the ends of the earth and to eternity. Look, you may not, never have a chance to speak to 40,000 people. But you can keep bringing yourself to Jesus over and over and saying, God, I want to show up someday and have a little bit more than seashells in my hand. I want to be able to say that for my whole life as imperfectly, yeah, imperfect, yes, broken, yes, but I sought to know you more and to serve your kingdom and to do greater works than I did at first. Let's pray.